Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace. I'm glad you've tuned in for another episode. How armies maintain discipline and how they conceive of moral and ethical boundaries in warfare is an important question for military leaders. On one hand, war requires soldiers to act and behave outside of the bounds of normal moral and ethical behavior, uh, inflicting violence and potentially killing or wounding other humans in service of the state. And on the other hand, armies work extraordinarily hard to maintain discipline and define certain behaviors as outside those boundaries, even in wartime. And so today's podcast explores how field-grade officers confronted these challenges during the American Civil War, and specifically with the idea of retaliation. So joining me in the studio today is Dr. Lorian Foote. She is the Patricia and Bookman Peters Professor in History at Texas A&M University. She's a historian of the American Civil War, and her most recent book published in 2016 with the University of North Carolina Press is The Yankee Plague, Escaped Union Prisoners and the Collapse of the Confederacy. And currently, she's working on a study of retaliation during the American Civil War. So, Lorian, thanks for coming to War Room. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so I'm going to ask what might be a really simple question, but I just don't know the answer. So what is retaliation, and how common is it in the American Civil War? What I have found in my research, which really surprised me when I got started with this project, is that there is a retaliation incident associated with every single military campaign of the Civil War. And I think a lot of people, when they hear the word retaliation, they think about revenge. They think about kind of what they know from the Civil War is that sometimes the Union Army would burn a community near a guerrilla attack. Um, And that's not what the combatants meant by retaliation. So what retaliation is, it's it's a method that was allowed according to the customs of war in Western civilized nations. It was a method to hold the, your enemy accountable mm-hmm. to following the rules of war. So both the Union and the Confederacy wanted to show the world at large that they were part of a long tradition of civilized nations. And to do that, they had to show that they were following the customs of war. So what would happen is during a campaign, if one of the commanders believed that the enemy had done something that violated the rules of war, he would initiate a ritual of retaliation. And so what this looked like is that a commander would write a letter to his opponent and he would specify a violation of the rules of war. So he would say, your men are entering houses to pillage. This violates the customs of war. You have 15 days to respond to this letter. And you need to either prove to me that this, you don't sanction this and that the soldiers who are entering houses to pillage, they're not doing this with your permission and you're mm-hmm. punishing any violators that are caught, or you have to promise, okay, yes, we have been doing this, but I will not do it anymore. And if you On don't, my honor. <laughs> uh, yeah. And if you don't do that, I have set aside 15 prisoners of war as hostages and I will retaliate against them. That's fascinating. So this is an extraordinarily like complex interplay of formal mm-hmm. mechanisms, mm-hmm. really, to to demonstrate, like you said, the that everybody's following mm-hmm. the laws and customs of war. And then what what would happen once 
they were unsatisfied that this is that they won't do it again or that they're punishing right. violators. So what does retaliation then look like in practice? So it depends on how well the people who are conducting a particular retaliation incident, how well they know the rules, what their underlying intentions are. So it can go different ways. So one, I'll give you kind of three examples that show you different ways okay. that it can go. So in the Trans-Mississippi, a lot of the retaliation incidents revolve around the Confederacy's, I shouldn't say the Confederacy because it wasn't officially sanctioned. A, a lot of the incidents revolve around ordinary citizens who supported the Confederacy rising up to implement guerrilla warfare against Union okay. armies. Okay. So the Union army commanders consider guerrilla warfare to be not legitimate. It's not guerrilla warfare if it's conducted by people who aren't in uniform, aren't in the pay of a regular army, which means they're not under the discipline of a regular right. army. Um, their, their, their actions then are uncontrolled, unregulated, and therefore, you know, starting to get out. Irregular yeah. warfare. Yes. Right? <laughs> So what would happen is um, when Union commanders would execute guerrillas that they captured, they would often summarily execute them. So sometimes Confederate field officers would initiate a retaliation incident and they would write a letter and they'd say, we've heard that you executed this citizen and we've got a prisoner of war set aside. Now in this case, what usually happened is that the Union commander would say, that person is a gorilla, and we, you know and I know that gorillas are uncivilized. I don't apologize for that, and if you want us to quit executing citizens, you need to control your gorillas. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is that generally the Confederate commander lets it drop because what a lot of historians who study guerrilla warfare were realizing is the Confederate leadership was really not comfortable with the guerrillas. Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, they also really agree that guerrilla warfare is not... They want to be a civilized... Yes. <laughs> ...nation, right? They want to be have all the trappings of the state and to, yes. and to control that, and they're coming from the same military professional sort of ideals and norms and backgrounds. So yes. Same cultures. So in so, that in that case we've got right guerrillas and, and regulars. So that's one And there are there are partisan rangers that do have a relationship with the Confederate Army and so the Confederacy will try to protect partisan rangers. Mm -hmm. And what would happen in that case is if the Union Army executes or holds someone that the Confederate Army claims as a partisan and not just a citizen who's kind of right. risen up, um, they will set aside Union prisoners of war as hostages. And so what ends up happening in those kind of situations is you end up having mutual hostage taking and then those end up being kind of standoffs where mm -hmm. they're, they're not, neither side is kind of changing behavior, but they're both claiming the other side is wrong, and then they've just got hostages that they're holding in a standoff. Okay, so now I'll give you an example of how it can work in a very interesting example that I think will change kind of how we think of, of Sherman during his march. All right, so my the cat is named after General Sherman, <laughs> one of them. I well, also have Admiral Farragut. Interesting, I like that. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of debate among historians about did Sherman try to dis rein in and discipline mm -hmm. his men in South Carolina or does he let them just run wild? So I think this incident is really interesting because this is an example of both sides drawing their lines and adjusting behaviors. So after the Union Army 
enters Colombia, Colombia burns. There's been a lot of incidents between uh, Union soldiers and ordinary citizens in South Carolina. What happens is there starts to be a series of incidents where Union foragers who break off from the, from the main columns are being murdered with their throats cut and signs put on their bodies that say death to all foragers. Mm -hmm. Sherman has standing retaliation orders in his army and Sherman immediately executes Confederate prisoners of war and he sends a letter to Wade Hampton, his opponent at this point in South Carolina, and he says, foraging is a war right as old as history. See the books. I can forage through this countryside, and when your people kill my foragers, I will deem it murder, and I will execute one of your prisoners for every forager of mine mm -hmm. that is murdered. So Hampton writes him back, and he goes, I don't know what you're talking about, about these forager murders. What I do know is that your men are entering houses, and I have standing orders that any man who is seen entering a house should be shot on sight. So what's interesting there is Hampton is basically acknowledging he doesn't do it as well. He doesn't lay it out as specific, but he's basically acknowledging I'm, I'm not murdering your foragers when he says, I don't I'm know. I'm murdering what people who are entering. But I, but I am murdering people, you know, and I can't control my citizens. It's the subtext. I can't control mm -hmm. citizens if they murder your forages, but I don't know about that. I'm not responsible for that. What's really interesting is Sherman's response. He writes back and he says, I agree with you that if any of my men enter houses, that's wrong. And if your people shoot any of my men caught entering a house or firing a house, I won't deem it wrong and I won't execute any of your prisoners. And then he actually sends orders down the chain in his command. And I, you know, I followed, they're actually issued at the regimental level. This is a reminder from General Sherman. If you enter and pillage a house, the Confederates can shoot you down and we're not going to retaliate. They can, they can do with you. They can do with you what you want. Mm-hmm. So that is actually a stronger effort on Sherman's part to discipline his men in a way that I think a lot of people haven't recognized. And what I find really fascinating about that incident is both sides are drawing the clear lines of what is civilized war. And both sides in this case agree foraging is legitimate, pillaging and burning mm -hmm. individual private houses is not legitimate, and we're going to move forward making sure that we kind of, we've let things get a little out of control and we're going to try to rein it back in. Pull it back in. And that's the purpose that retaliation is supposed to, to achieve. Is there any sense that when Sherman gives these orders down, that, that there's a, a sort of subtext or a wink, wink, nudge, nudge? <laughs> like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that you can't do this thing, but we all know right. this is happening anyway. So that's how a lot of historians have interpreted Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of orders starting... You know, starting with the march to Savannah, there's a lot of orders about don't do this, don't do right. that. And everybody says it's all there kind of for, for world opinion, but then wink, wink, he doesn't care. But it's really clear to me in these orders, there starts being a, a lot more of them after the correspondence with Hampton. And there, there's actual penalties implemented. And then the key thing is I've been reading, of course, soldiers' letters and diaries and they're, they record these retaliation incidents. That's a big deal to them that they have to execute prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. They don't like doing that. And one regiment, even the prisoner of war that they execute, uh, was a 60-year-old Methodist minister from South Carolina who was conscripted. And so they're, you know, they feel like they're, in, they're executing this innocent person. Um, 
and and they talk about things are getting out of control we all need to rein it back in Mm -hmm. and henry halleck who is the commander-in-chief for all union armies at one point in the war he was the recognized expert before the war on the international laws of war he'd written a book about it and he actually talks about what are the purposes of retaliation and when should you use it and one of the things that he says is it's its purpose is uh, to stop the other side from from going in certain it's prevention Mm -hmm. um and in this case that i'm talking about south carolina it went too far before the prevention kicked in but i really do think that after these incidents happened both sides were like okay we we've gone Mm -hmm. too far and i i just see it in the tenor of what soldiers are writing in the tenor of the orders these are not wink wink orders these are we've got to stop our men from entering houses because they're going to get shot and we know that they should be shot because we know that, that they're they not, sh- supposed, that they're to not that. supposed to do it according to the customs of war. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's the first two. And then you said there's a, there's a third. Yeah, so, so a third example that I want to give is one where the Confederacy takes a stand and the union just caves on it temporarily. So in July of 1862, when Abraham Lincoln brings John Pope from the Western Theater to Virginia and creates the Army of Virginia, and Pope issues a a series of orders that Civil War historians identify as really starting to mark the use of hard war on the part of Union war policy. So he issues orders that if there are guerrilla attacks on Union... Uh, any part of the Union lines, there's going to be some punishment on civilians. He orders his men to live off the land and quit guarding private property. And he says anyone who doesn't take an oath is going to be expelled um, into the Confederate lines. And key, anyone who tries to communicate with someone who's been expelled, we can kind of consider you a spy and we will execute you. So there's some threats to execute civilians. The Confederacy is completely outraged, and Jefferson Davis instructs Robert E. Lee to initiate a retaliation incident where Lee writes the commanding general of Union armies, and in this he says, um, you know, this all violates the, the customs of war, and we, because the officers of the Army of Virginia have the ability to resign... Unlike private soldiers, if the officers of the Army mm-hmm. of Virginia do not resign when they read these orders, it shows that they are participating and sanctioning these orders, which means they're not legitimate combatants according to the laws of war. So we don't have to hold them as prisoners of war. We will define them as felons. And we will take them as hostages. And if you actually execute any civilians under Pope's order, we will execute these felonious prisoners of war. So um, what's really interesting about that is Halleck at first kind of writes back, um, you know, this is outrageous and I don't have to answer And Halleck to is the expert. Again, yeah, yeah. On- which is interesting because his response does not follow the ritual mm-hmm. as it normally goes. I think he, he just had a moment where he was too upset to, to do it properly or whatever. But what's really interesting about it is right after that threat of retaliation, is when a series of orders goes out from Pope's headquarters. When I said live off the land, I didn't mean pillage. I didn't mean do this. We got to rein everybody in. And then at the Battle of Cedar Mountain is the first time on August 9th that Pope's officers are taken prisoner after that battle. They're sent to Libby Prison in Richmond, and they're put in a separate cell from all the other 
they're separate cell from the officers who are in the Army of the Potomac under McClellan. They're treated differently. They're treated differently than McClellan's officers. And what's really interesting about this is that the Lincoln administration sends a message to Richmond, we will not enforce Pope's orders. Hmm. And when, when they get that message, uh, all of Pope's officers are released. So even though, of course, this doesn't stave off hard war in the long run, it does temporarily. It changes behavior. It changed, just, it changed behavior. A clear response. Mm -hmm. So is there a change, is there a change over time in how retaliation is sort of conceived and, and then executed? Mm -hmm. I don't see a change over time. What I see is that it varies depending on what is the issue that's being, um, what is the larger law of war that's kind at of being stake. debated at stake? And then the nature of uh, the particular field commander, that, whether they, they truly follow the ritual to the letter or not. So if, if we go back to the Sherman example, he didn't follow the ritual correctly in a way because he didn't notify the Confederacy that if they executed foragers who would retaliate he just had standing orders of retaliation okay and the ritual is supposed to be that you know each other's intentions so even though the ritual worked in a sense for the sherman because they both drew lines they both kind of changed behaviors they both acknowledged that they agreed on certain element of the rules i mean prisoners of war died in that incident right. and it, and that wasn't necessarily the case because Sher it like skips a few steps. yeah because by, because by skipping this the step of executing people before Wade Hampton said, I don't know about the forager murders. Pis prisoners of war were executed when it wasn't official Confederate policy to okay. murder foragers. Yeah, so I think, so it sounds like personality, the specific context is, mm -hmm. is all sort mm -hmm. of really important. When we talk about the laws of war, it sounds mm -hmm. like one of the things that retaliation is meant... Um, maybe meant to address in sort of a just or like theoretical framework mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the idea of proportionality mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. idea that there are, that there are boundaries. There are use in, in bellow, right? That there are things that you do and things that you don't do. Were there, um, were there standards or sort of certain ways of thinking about how many X is it, mm -hmm. is it one for, is it one <laughs> for one? Is it, um, a group of people? You use the correct word proportional. Um, the the when when the union army issues general orders 100 which a lot of people recognize these are the orders that kind of lay out the codes of war that the union army is going to follow starting in april of 1863 there there's a section that lays out retaliation and i mean one of the things that francis lieber who offered who authored most of that code one of the things that he says is you can't retaliate by committing a savage act so in other words, if your enemy poisons your wells, you can't poison wells in response. You can't be savage yourself. That was so out of bounds. Yeah, that's so out of the, the you can't do, do the same thing. So that there are limits to retaliation. Now there's also, the, the idea in retaliation is that you can't punish the innocent for the acts of the guilty. With the exception, both sides agree that if the entire community sanctions an event, then you can hold them responsible. So that's going to be the union's justification for why they'll burn a community after a guerrilla attack, mm, because okay. their perspective is the community hides and harbors these guerrillas. Without these communities, guerrillas could not operate. And so even though the citizens of this community didn't commit the attack, they're still complicit. 
Okay. Is this system of retaliation, is it only possible, right, this ritualized sort of formal mechanism, um, is this is this only possible when there are two belligerents or two combatants that share, right, sort of these norms and, mm-hmm. and cultures? Do we see any any places where they're operating from different norms and assumptions about mm-hmm. what civilized war looks like? So when Union Army commanders are fighting indigenous peoples that they view as outside the bounds of war, they're not going to implement these mm-hmm. same rituals. And, and their view is we're fighting savages. We can use savage right. tactics. Okay. And so, it, so and, and because to do this ritual correctly, it does require people to share the norms because you have to have not only the shared language, but the, the shared texts. So, for example, most of the field officers, they draw from... Uh, a Swiss thinker who wrote the Law of Nations, Vattel. Mm-hmm. And what what's fascinating is I'm thinking now of an incident where uh, General Beauregard in South Carolina, when the Union Army first begins using former slaves and enlisting them and then actually begins to launch raids using black troops, Beauregard writes this long letter to the Union commander where he, every paragraph quotes Vattel. And he says, as we know from Vittel, as we know yeah. from Vittel. And he, so he's assuming, and he, you know, it's kind of, he even says, as we know, so he's assuming we've all read Vittel, right. we all acknowledge that he's the authority, and so we can use him as evidence to to make our claim and stake to our claim and that, that we can have this conversation. Yeah, if you're going to say, like, read the book, right. everybody's got to know yes. what, the, yes. what the book is and what yeah. the common sort of operating picture is. When we think about how this work um and i'm going to ask you to do a thing that i that sometimes historians don't love to do (laughs) which is to to speculate or think about how um how these sort of questions matter uh in the in a contemporary environment what are the what are the questions or the themes Mm. that contemporary military professionals military leaders or national Mm -hmm. security professionals Mm -hmm. might think about when it comes to questions about the sort of normative behaviors in, in wartime? Well, one of the things that I've thought about a lot about this project, because for people who engage in this ritual, they have a clear understanding that there's certain people who are not legitimate combatants. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is their definitions of that have carried forward into modern warfare. The Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions. Right. If, if I look at even at Vietnam, the way that... Um, Officers in Vietnam, there are certain things that you do that's not legitimate if you're not an if you're not in uniform, if you're if you're not. And so this way that um, the ritual of retaliation was used to eventually codify what makes you legitimate right. and what makes you not legitimate, we still operate on those assumptions. When the questions about enemy combatants in the global war on terror, right. this is, you can, you can see a really direct sort of linkage about the, the language and what is, what is allowable and, and what is not. Um, so I think I, I can, you can see the, the intellectual sort of lineage of some of that. Right. So, so I would just say that's a historical background. That's, that's not necessarily the same as how does it apply, but it's, it's an understanding that when you're saying, um, you know, this isn't legitimate, I mean, this is something that Grant and Sherman, I'm thinking now of 
there was firing on Union hospital boats from the banks of the Mississippi mm -hmm. River. And Grant and Sherman, in a retaliation correspondence that they have with Confederate General John Pemberton, they lay out over and over that if you're unarmed and you're firing from bushes, that's not legitimate. Um, and, you, and they specifically state in their letters, we all know you have to be in uniform. And none of these people are in uniform. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's important to recognize that, that these rules were laid out in a context of people thinking about war through the cultural lens of civilization. And we don't think in that same cultural lens anymore, and we don't have the same rituals and negotiation, and we don't have the same assumption that the people we're fighting have read the same books and that the people we're fighting have these same assumptions, but yet we're still applying the same rules to them. Mm -hmm. um, and we still talk about othering the enemy, about how we conceive of warfare, what is legitimate and what is not in irregular or regular mm -hmm. context. Um, now we talk about hybrid war and the gray zone and all of this. <laughs> it, it means everything, everything new is, or everything old is, is <laughs> right. new again, right? Um, so I think there's actually, there's, I, my brain is mm -hmm. making like a million different little mm -hmm. neurons firing about the ways we talk about these, these kind of questions. And I guess the other thing that I would just throw in and, you know, and I always want to be careful when I'm, when I'm in podcasts like this, that I don't come across as one of these academics that's, you know, lecturing about war is always totally evil. So, so I, I want my comment here that I'm about to, to make to, to be taken, not in a critical spirit of, of our military. But one of the things that is interesting to me is in this ritual of retaliation, just like in the Sherman incident, both sides are actually have an opening there to admit that we were wrong. Mm -hmm. And so Sherman, even though he's executed some Confederate POWs, I mean, he's writing his enemy. You know what? If my men enter your houses, I'm that's Shoot wrong. Em. Shoot him. That's okay with me. That's wrong. And that, so that ritual kind of allows for both sides to have some introspection and to think about, and, you know, and I think the military today still has ways that there's introspection and, and was that right? And I mean, you know, there's wonderful conferences about military ethics and all of that. But I wonder, and this is something I just don't know, without having that ritual of retaliate, retaliation, do we have in the field and in the moment the same kind of ability to pause yeah. and say, let's think about what we're doing and, and does this follow the rules that we want to, to establish around warfare? Um, are, are there reasons that we we might need to adjust our behavior here? You know, maybe those things are in place, and I just don't know because I'm a Civil War historian and not a 20th century historian. But um, there's there's a purpose in rituals between enemies, and we don't have rituals between enemies anymore. And so maybe that would be the thing that I would would ask people to just think about. All right. So I think that's a great way to close out. Lorian, thanks so much for coming onto the War Room and talking to us about a really, I think, interesting topic in the Civil War. And I will, I'll look forward to reading the, the book when it's done. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.